You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Emma Heath and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Welcome everybody to today's podcast discussing the topic of diversity within the NHS. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you to everybody for your time this evening. I know that you're busy individuals, um, so I really appreciate it. We'll just start and kick things off with some introductions. Um, I know that you all know me already, but I'm Emma and I work on the NHS team at Evolution Recruitment. We are a Crown Commercial Service Framework supplier who deliver interim digital IT and tech talent into the NHS. Our purpose at Evolution is that we are committed to helping people and NHS NHS organisations realise their potential. There are three key parts to that. Firstly, our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. Second to that, how we do that is we collaborate with NHS organisations, helping them build high performing digital teams. And finally, how we do that is through curating and sharing insights into the ever evolving NHS and digital industry industry best practice, such as events like this podcast tonight. So that's me in evolution. Um, Tom, we'll come round to you first. You're first on my screen so if you could just introduce yourself. No that's okay, uh, my name's Tom Boyle, I'm Head of Telecoms at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals, um, responsible in terms of, sorry for strategy, so anything in terms of voice, voice products, telephones, pages, contact centres, um, integration into sort of IT platforms like Microsoft Teams and other unified comms platforms, I think that's it in a, in a nutshell really. Thanks Tom, Vishal will come around to you next. Um, I'm Vishal Sharma and I'm the Associate Director at the Improvement Academy uh, based at Bradford Teaching Hospitals. Thanks Vishal and then Mike last but not least. Hi, I'm Mike Ford. I'm a non-exec director at Southwest Yorkshire Partnership Foundation Trust. We're a mental and community health service trust. Um, I'm the senior independent director, uh, so have responsibility for the freedom to speak up process. Uh, I'm chair of the audit committee and I'm also a member of the equality involvement and inclusion committee. Bob, thank you very much everybody. Um, so we'll move into the questions now. Um, so first question is, how has any discrimination we have experienced or observed shaped us in terms of the decisions we've made? with building and developing teams and processes as we'd advanced in our careers. So Tom, I'm going to come round to you first on this one, if that is okay. Okay, um, I think in terms of process, I think experience has taught me that no matter how sort of long-standing tasks or any sort of um, roles and responsibilities that people have, however well-tuned they think they might have things, it doesn't mean that they can't be questioned. I think I'm sure everyone will appreciate that a lot of things that happen in the NHS have happened for a long time and they don't get challenged because they've always happened. I think when I was in a more junior position, it was not so not not so much frowned upon that you would challenge the status quo. I think I used to um, I used to sort of feel that it wasn't sort of my place to say. So I think that's taught me as I've progressed is that I like the fact that everyone challenges everything. Anyone that's got any any slight knowledge of anything, I think it gives that gives them sort of every every involvement in a process, and they should challenge things. So I think um, that's sort of process for me. Um, what the second part was more about team building and developing teams. So sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's very, very similar sort of stuff in terms of team building. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I default to the other two guys see if they had anything more on it and it might spark, <laughs> my, 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. And um, Vishal, do you have anything else to say on that? Anything to add? Um, I suppose in terms of the discrimination experienced and observed, it's maybe more aware of how sometimes the discrimination can be quite covert and it's things you don't realise or you might not even consider to be discrimination. And it's always, it's always down to how the individual interprets it and how it comes across to them. So I think that's made me a bit more alert and aware of that. And I think that's held me in good stead as I've developed and progressed in my career to be more mindful of how actions and behaviours and comments come across. Um, and hopefully, like Tom said, you know, encourage people to kind of speak up and raise their voice to concerns so they don't feel like they have to put up with these things. They can question things, challenge things and know that, you know, as, as a manager, my role here is to support them and help them and not see me as someone who's just here to, um, you know, do what the trust says or, you know, I'm, I'm here to support my team. Thanks for Charlotte. And Mike, come on to you on this. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting. You think about it in the really obvious terms of discrimination. I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I personally have suffered any discrimination. I'm a kind of middle class, privately educated, white bloke, you know, all that kind of stuff. And therefore, I didn't suffer much discrimination, you know. And then in the modern terms, you know, I could be considered to be quite privileged. Um, but I, you know, we all, we've all witnessed discrimination. My, my, you know, my own, my parents and my, their generation were, you know, hugely discriminatory. They had some really abhorrent views, um, particularly around race. And actually, just as a, you know, as somebody that tries to make every decision based on logic and fairness and equity, seeing people making decisions based on something and prejudice is, does actually affect you. And I think we have constant reminders of it. I think, the, and therefore, I've tried to make sure that I manage my teams by taking account of everybody's views and trying to be inclusive about bringing everybody on board. I mean, I think it's, it's as much about diversity of, of ways of working and approaches and, and styles that is as, as important to some as the, well, can be as important as some of the protected characteristics. I think that what's difficult is that I'm still fairly blind to some forms of discrimination because I'm it's that kind of whole thing about unconscious bias you know that I would I would I'm sure I've made mistakes because I've not appreciated the way that somebody with a different protected characteristic might be thinking a really interesting example when we were doing a project at the BBC to try and get more people from the local community involved in trying to join them and we went to kind of run kind of run down part of London near our offices we met to, we met some people as part of a recruitment process who who said that as part of their culture it was inappropriate to start to look at somebody more senior than them straight in the eyes and so I might have interviewed that candidate and said well this candidate's terrible they're not even bothering to look at me but actually they're, they're in their culture they, sh they shouldn't have looked at me because I was a person of seniority and therefore it wasn't fair it wasn't right for them to look at me so you know and I'm, I'm still learning those kind of things all the time the things that I take for granted there's actually a reason behind it and I think we just all have to be open-minded about it so we can all see horrible discrimination in, in, in the past but also now and we just have to learn from it in the way that we and ed educate ourselves as much as possible in the way that we manage people and manage our team. Thank you, Mike. Tom, is going to come back round to you just to see if there's anything else that, you know, has that sparked anything else or? Um, no, no, about in agreement with what the guys have said, in all honesty. Bab, all right, well, we'll move on to the second question. Um, so this was, how how can we improve the recruitment, promotion and retention of people from diverse backgrounds, particularly at more senior levels? Um, so Vishal, we'll come round to you first on this one. Okay, um, this is a tricky question, I suppose, to answer because based on various reports you've, we've seen over the years there seems to be um, some like there's bias within the NHS at some level um, there's always reports being released about racism within the NHS um, there was a report a couple of months ago about how people from black Asian minority backgrounds had to apply for a job multiple times to be promoted and were two to three times less likely to get a role that a white candidate would get so it seems to be inherent within the system that people are of minority backgrounds are not seen as equivalent potentially even though they might have the same qualifications, the same level of experience. 
Um, so there seems to be something to we, we have to do at, from the outset of changing the attitudes and the biases people have that are on those recruitment panels. Obviously, um, within the NHS, we do have guidelines that say your interview panel should be a di diverse group of individuals with various backgrounds and experience and disabilities. Um, but that isn't always adhered to and it's not always enforced. Um, I know many panels where the panel was all white British, um, all male. And thinking, how is that reflective of A, the organisation, but also the population of people that we actually represent and are looking after? So there's one level bit there to do. Um, in terms of promotion as well, it's making sure, like, suppose, like Mike said, like different cultures, different societies have different rules and different norms. And it's being aware of that and understanding, well, actually, if someone doesn't make eye contact, it doesn't mean that they're shy or they're lacking in confidence or anything else. It's just how they were brought up and it's and their cultural norms we have to understand and respect. So I think that there's a lot about the education that managers have within the organisation to understand these, these variations. Um, and I think it's, it's, it is challenging because I think there's a lack of confidence people have from diverse backgrounds of applying for certain roles of how they might be perceived from their own experience. Um, so I think there's something about kind of training those individuals and giving them the knowledge and skills and confidence, whether it's interview training, whether it's training in writing applications to make them feel a bit more comfortable in applying for those senior roles. Mike, we'll, we'll come round to you next. We'll yeah. get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly an issue. So if you look at, you know, I don't know much about the stat, but certainly at our trust, there are, there's a, a marked difference between representation, let's say around ethnicity at more junior levels compared to mm -hmm. more senior levels. So there appears to be an issue of people of ethnic backgrounds getting through to senior level roles. And I don't know whether that is due to um, their interviewing training or whether or not they've been suitably prepared or not. I, I also, I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is to track the data. So we're getting richer data now on the percentage of candidates who apply, the percentage of candidates who are interviewed, and then the percentage of candidates that are selected. And there is clearly a drop-off for ethnic minority candidates as you go through those three things. So more are applying compared to the ones that are getting through. And I think we'd have to get underneath those numbers to understand some of the reasons why that's not happening. I also think the level of people applying is relatively low as well. And that also, you know, I also think that is true of, of people with disability and, and different sexual orientation as well. And I think that's partly as a result of the lack of role models at senior level. I think there is an issue about being seen, seeing people of a, like themselves in very senior roles and then having the confidence they can then be successful in getting that. So I think there's a lot of work to do. I, I think you're asking us for, um, for an answer to, to, you know, how we do something about it. And I think there's a lot of work that's still needed. I think we need, my own view on some of, a lot of this debate over the years is that we, we carry out quite regular initiatives. So we'll put in a sort of, we'll put in some kind of, okay, we're going to have a programme to try and get a num certain number of people developed to get to a certain level. And that becomes, that's a single initiative. And then it, it's either successful or not successful. And then we start another initiative two years later, because it, either the first one worked or it didn't. And mm -hmm. we don't, we don't, we haven't really found a way in, in the NHS, in society as a whole, of embedding successful, you know, successful processes, embedding them into organisations to mean that they happen naturally, rather than having to happen through some kind of initiative or management exercise, or you know, even if you, if you take the extent of some of the unconscious bias training that's seen as a sort of mandatory thing to do so people do it as a kind of part of a tick list as opposed to actually really taking on board what the lessons of that training mean and then putting them into practice on, a, on everyday decisions including recruitment retention as well a lot of organizations that i can see have really well-meaning and really well-intentioned and genuine passionate executive teams that want to deliver change but they can't take every individual decision they're not in every part of the organization mm -hmm. so they're relying upon what they're trying to do what we're trying to do as a board we're relying on that cascading successfully across all levels 
And I think I think we need to do more work at middle management level because they are the people that are making decisions about recruitment and retention. We're not as a board sitting in on all of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we can't influence. We can set out our ambitions, strategic objectives, and we can set out the values of the organisation, but we can't check they're being lived every day. So we know from from data around you know disproportionate number of disciplinaries for people from ethnic backgrounds, ethnic minority backgrounds, and you know as I said about retention, there are issues out there which we can't we can't work out as a board at a micro level. So we're absolutely reliant upon our, our middle managers. And I think mm-hmm. my own view is a lot a lot of those managers, um, as I say, uh, you know, this is not just this is not an NHS thing. This is a general view about about society as a whole. I regard a lot of that as being a kind of mandatory training. I've got to go through it. You know, I'll do it one afternoon. I'll tick it off, and then I'll just carry on and I'll behave the same as I did before. And I think that's a real issue. And I think we've got to find a way of engaging with middle managers. I mean, I think what people talk about is making the business case for inclusion, demonstrating how your department will be more successful, how your organisation will be more successful if you're more inclusive. And I don't clearly, for some people, we haven't won that argument. We haven't made that business case. And I hate talking about it in what might seem to be financial terms, but I think we've got to make middle management understand and get them to want to understand that actually an inclusive and diverse team will deliver better results for them and for the their organisation as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you, Mike. All right, well, question three is, um, what can slash is being done to give junior staff in terms of age and relative seniority the opportunities to gain further insight and experience in more senior roles in the digital space in lieu of the traditional time-served requirements that have been commonplace in the NHS for a long time? So, Tom, I don't know if you wanted to kick things off with this. Yeah, no, that's OK. So, I think the way I was coming at this is that, obviously, working in in a sort of an area of, um, of technology in a digital space is that we work with a lot of third-party organisations and we come across a, a lot of graduates in those organisations that are fast-tracked into senior positions because technically they're brilliant. And being technically brilliant, you can be technically brilliant at any age. You can be technically brilliant at 15 and you can be technically brilliant through watching YouTube for sort of 30 hours and you can learn to be an expert at something. But that's that's not necessarily the case in the NHS. There's this whole time serving. There's years of experience that are often required for jobs. I know that we changed it in the past in a lot of organisations. So no longer does it say 10 years or equivalent. It says a master's degree or equivalent. But ultimately, the equivalent to that is three to five years of working in the NHS. So what we've been doing in our organisation, what I've been trying to do, is to try and start an initiative that sort of helps staff that are junior. So not junior purely because they're young, maybe because they're a band two or three and they want to move into senior roles. And it's 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 about helping them gain experience where they wouldn't usually, so that if they decide they want to be a project support officer, but they're a clerical officer, if they work in, I don't know, radiology, they're probably not going to have any ability to be involved in a project and learn those skills. So what we're trying to do is sort of link teams together so that there can be assistance given from a member of staff in an area that they want to learn or gain knowledge in. At the same time, obviously, hugely understaffed in certain areas, it means that there's resource there that we can draw upon. So that was that was sort of where I was going with it. I don't, like I say, I'd be interested to see what the guys think and have a whole host of things that I talk about. But that was that was the crux of it. Okay, thank you, Tom. And um, Vishal, have you got any thoughts on, on that? It is, it is a challenging question. And I think part of it is, I think at times within the NHS, we have that old mindset of you need to have a certain number of years of experience, certain, you know, I think we often equate age with wisdom. Mm-hmm. And until that mindset sort of changes and evolves, it's going to be difficult to to offer those junior staff the opportunities to develop and progress. And I think a lot of it comes down to the individual managers and it's their role as a manager to identify those strong developers, those strong staff members um, and develop those skills and, and provide those opportunities, whether it's through secondments, whether 
it's through kind of job sharing roles or something else. And I think a lot of it comes down to the manager, unfortunately. And if the manager isn't of that mindset, nothing will happen. There's only so much the individual themselves can do, I think, to progress and develop. But it's up to the manager to kind of see that potential and support and develop it. Um, so from my point of view, it, it is down to that manager. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, developing training packages or having policy, etc., in place is not going to change behavior unless there's some way of actually enforcing that in, in practice, which again requires more commitment and more resources, which again, at the moment, the NHS does not have. So it's changing the behavior of the managers, which is the sticking point from my point of view. Thanks, for sure. I mean, Mike, we'll come around to you next. It seems to this, maybe this kind of follows on quite nicely, maybe to your question oh. about that, the middle managers potentially. So a bit of crossover here. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm interested to learn as much as I answer the question here, because I don't know, I don't know how much of the issue the time serving is. I can, I could, and how much it is specific to digital roles rather than any role in the in the NHS. I mean, I could imagine, and it's interesting to think what the, the service user, the, 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 you know, the patient or the carer or the stakeholders might think about a very junior person appearing you know, to provide them care or to provide them advice. You can sort of see that actually that might be an issue why people have been reticent to, to promote people of, of, a, of a younger age. So that may be something that we need to think about. Interesting enough, we've just appointed a new non-exact director and actually he was by far the youngest candidate of the of the, uh, of the three or four that we took through to um, the final interview selection. And our, our selection process for non-exec, and I'm not sure that, you know, it's not sustainable for every role, but part of our interview process to, is to ask them to carry out um, sessions with, with stakeholder groups. So they have half an hour with three members of staff, you know, either somebody more junior or somebody more senior than they would, obviously from Ned, they'd all be more junior, but um, we'd also get them to talk to three, potentially three of our governors who might be service users or carers, and we get them to talk to other other stakeholders. And we get, and we got really positive feedback on how well our candidate, our successful candidate would fit in, and yet he was the youngest. So I think, you know, whilst we might have all sat, if we'd done it in a very traditional way, we might have looked at him and said, you know what, he's too young and we need somebody, you know, if it's going to be a Ned, they need to be somebody with years of experience and all that kind of stuff. But actually, David went down so well with the stakeholders, that was a really important part of the feedback. So I think we need to think about different ways of recruitment, because it might be that, you know, if Tom's got a young person that wants to progress, and actually they went around and met stakeholders in the in the organisation as part of that, the stakeholders would get an opportunity to see how impressive the candidate was, and that might boost their opportunity to get the role. You know, if the manager was to then understand, oh, actually, yeah, this candidate will be successful, they will be able to do a good job, there isn't a barrier through their age or their lack of experience or any other characteristic we might want to talk about, that kind of exposure, the opportunity to be exposed, you know, maybe through the interview process or maybe even through short-term secondments and placements that people can then, you know, if it's successful, that might then lead to something more permanent. So I think there's a lot of ways try you know i think it's a it's an age-old problem as we've all said but i think there are some ways we can try and change that thank you mike has anybody else got any kind of extra th- thoughts on that one uh, no i was just going to say on, on what mike said is i think that i think i appreciate the fact that time served or years of experience in clinical roles is vital i get that if you are a doctor of 20 30 years you're going to know a lot more about <laughs> the clinical area that you work in i think it's more about the fact that there's a whole host of transferable skills that you can have in a clerical role or a technical role or maybe an engineering role if you're in estates or facilities that you can lift up and take into the private sector and a lot of people are doing that at the moment and it's I don't I just I feel like there's something that needs to be done to keep those people in the NHS because there is going to come a time where there's just going to be sort of staffing falling off the cliff of all these experts or all these sort of um, this expertise is going to disappear and it's going to be leaving the NHS and this is supposed to be this golden generation especially in the digital area of of, um, people graduating or people that started their schooling where they've always had a computer they've always had an iPad they've grown up with all the technology so we should be just I don't I don't know I don't know what's to be done to harness that but it just feels that there's 
going to come a point in time whereby these these people are just going to disappear. They're going to go and work where the money is, where the remuneration packages are better. I just I'm not quite sure what can be done to keep those people in the public sector. Yeah, I think I mean that's an interesting point, isn't it? We haven't even talked about that, but I certainly think for you know we're crying out for analytical skills. You know, a lot of we've collected so much data that's going to help us deal with meeting our core strategic ambitions. You know, let alone things like addressing health inequalities. We have all that data, and yet you know analysing it is, is proving a bit of a headache really so it's something that and I think you're right you know I'm pretty sure that commercial organisations could offer those really high-flying analysts more money than the NHS can so there's, a, there's definitely something we need to do to try and try and address that bridge that gap I think. Thanks Mike um, we'll come round. we'll come back round to question four then I know that we've kind of touched upon it a little bit but I think there might be some extra bits of discussion that can be had so um, this was do we think that there is an issue with the middle manager level um, so that all good intentions of boards are not filtering through and being embedded across organisations. So, Mike, I don't know whether you want to add a little bit, little bit to that before we kind of well, go around. Obviously, Tom sort of missed my rant, but I, I, I'm happy for <laughs> yeah. For Vishal to come. I, I mean, I, I pose this question because I think there is an issue. I don't think that I don't think it is necessarily that people don't they don't want you know middle management don't want to help, but I think there are I think there's a better way of engaging with middle management to ensure that all the good intentions do filter through. Um, and I think that you know I think I mean I didn't mention it at the time, but I think sometimes you know I did some work on disability in the past and I think if you're a middle manager and you're recruiting you might genuinely I think people think twice about recruiting somebody with disability because they think oh I've got to go through all those hoops about you know accessibility and I'll have to do all this and I'll have to do all that actually it might be a lot easier if I don't and they also might think well if I'm going to recruit you know if I'm going to recruit a transgender person am I going to be opening myself up to a whole load of you know scrutiny or potential you know kind of there's been a lot of controversy in the press and in, in, it's, a, it's an interesting agenda do I really want to take that on board as a manager I might actually take the easy option and not appoint somebody with a with from a with a different protected characteristic and that I think is you know I'm not accusing anybody individually of doing that I just wonder about some of the way we approach this agenda might lead to some inadvertently negative behaviours. Thanks Mike. Um, Vishal we'll come round to you on this. Um, yeah it, that's it's a tricky question because I think on the one hand there might be an issue at the middle manager level but I suppose it's also the, the level of awareness the manager has so you might have these intentions coming down from the boards if the manager themselves doesn't see what they're doing as problematic or inappropriate they'll be like okay I'm, I'm already doing this so I'll just continue as normal um, so that, that there almost needs to be a almost self-reflection from that manager to say okay am I actually doing what you know the new policy is being is stating and that can only happen if they look at themselves quite critically which is often hard to do or if they have an external person say actually you know in the past um, six job adverts you put out you've only recruited a white person why is that the case unless someone actually asks those questions you're not going to have that manager kind of think back and say actually wait, maybe I, I am biased in some way I am doing something that's not quite right or maybe it's the way the job has been advertised or maybe during the, the recruitment process I'm my biases are coming through and I'm you know re rejecting certain applicants um so I think again it, it comes down to that level of self-awareness the manager has but also what the trust is doing to kind of promote those good intentions it's all well and good having an email come around that says oh from now on please do x y and z um and that's generally what happens in organizations uh, but there's no follow-up there's no kind of saying okay is this actually happening and we always tend, tend to think an email will result in behavior change or going on a training course will, will result in behavior change but the research shows that training does not have that impact at all it will, it will increase your knowledge and awareness but as soon as you walk out of that training room you'll go back to your old ways because you're like oh i know all this i'm already doing all this i'll just continue as normal and in some cases research shows that the training actually makes things a little bit worse because if you're an issue is highlighted you know for instance um people from um minority backgrounds are not being recruited and this is a problem in x number of organizations you'd be like oh everyone's doing it so I can do it as 
well. So in, in some cases, it can actually justify your behaviour, having that extra knowledge and awareness. So it's it's a tricky one to answer, but I think there's there's not a, a single solution to address the problem. And it's having that organisational um, approach, which goes beyond just having an email or a policy being written. And it's more about how we support managers throughout that process from beginning to end. Thanks, Bashar. Tom? No, I was, I, just following on from that, I think I took, I took a look online at sort of what was available. Obviously, I sit probably closer to middle management than the board, so I can understand probably more of that side of it. But it does feel like if I was to look online at, say, sort of the skills development network or NHS sort of any training that's there, and obviously Michelle touched on training, is that there does seem to be plenty of work going on on sort of in terms of board governance or board development and developing at that level. There doesn't seem to be a great deal available as a, not as a training package, but more of a, a tool to help the board connect with those middle management to where strategy and policy meet sort of day-to-day situations. And I think it's not necessarily that the board's not doing the right thing or they've got all the good intentions or the middle managers don't know. It's, they don't know how to implement that or what they're being told or what's there or what or what should happen. And I think that's probably where the gap is. I think in my sort of 10 years of working in IT and analytics and information services, is I've got a bit of a picture of the whole organisation, not necessarily just one clinical area. And I think that does seem to be the case that there is some sort of disconnect there between sort of strategy and policy driver, the execs and pragmatism and work around savvy operational colleagues. But I, I, just, I say I'm not, I don't know what needs to be done there because like Michelle says, training, it doesn't help. We get sent an email or we get sent, go and do this, this will help you. And you listen and you learn a little bit and with a little bit of knowledge, it's dangerous, isn't it? Is that you're not necessarily going to be that well de- well positioned to do any better. So um, that's my sort of two penneth on it. Thank you, Tom. Does anybody else have any extra bits that they want to say on that before we move on to the final question? So are we, are we essentially agreeing that there is an issue, but that when none of us are particularly clear on what the what the solution is, I I, I do think that I think both Tom and Vishal have made good points about how we support managers in making the right decisions, and and maybe that the, the current the kind of current mandatory training is is a bit of a blunt tool to try and support them. Um, I think it's a yeah we need to go away as organisations and boards and think about how we support those middle managers. And I'm, what I don't want people to think is my earlier comment were being overly critical about that middle management because they are the one. I mean, at the end of the day, they are the ones that are generally doing the job. You know, they are doing the they are doing the work. And actually, some of these things can be um, distractions or wrong work. But you know, they've got to fit in a day job and then try and consider some of these other other initiatives, etc. I think it's I do you know I do believe in what I said earlier, which I think is that the benefits of a truly diverse and inclusive organisation and team haven't really been understood, which would might then might mean that managers more naturally make different decisions because of understanding what those benefits might be. So I think there's work to do in that area. But we do, yeah, absolutely, we need to support middle management as much as we can. Thank you, Mike. Okay, well, we're on to the very final question. Um, So that was, has recent activity and research on race equality for both patients and staff of the NHS come at a cost to progress on other equality issues such as disability? Um, So Mike, I don't know whether you want to kick things off with it, with it kind of being your question. Yeah, I suppose, again, it's inherent in the question, is, is my view that the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I found it slightly surprising that um, the kind of looking around the staffing side of it, the focus on uh, put it this way, our disability network is the is the is the kind of least active and the least sort of successful across the different networks we staff networks we have. You know, if we look at our stats, you know, the UK the UK's 18% of the UK's workforce has a disability, not necessarily declared and obviously not necessarily visible, but that's still a you know much higher figure than we would see in any organisation in terms of our workforce. And you might argue that for the health service to not be representative around disability is almost more kind of like counterintuitive than in any other organisations. And I think that we don't, um, I don't feel 
that we've we have done as much as we can in that area i think that's fairly transparent i don't suppose we've done as much as we can in, against all the protected characteristics and i and i you know as i say i think there's been rightly a lot of concentration on uh, racial inequality particularly around some of the, the statistics that came out of you know the disproportionate impact of covid and just health inequalities generally and i think obviously the focus as a result of black lives matter etc i think has been right but i think it has meant that some other areas are not necessarily getting the focus and support they could do and it's but it's a difficult balance you know because it's quite hard to, to provide that kind of support i also think i think the disability is so much more of an individual issue you know every individual sub, you know has different experiences whereas i think other networks can be more collaborative and collegiate about the kind of the um the kind of discrimination that they suffer as a group whereas it tend the discrimination can tend to be individual related to person's specific disability so i think there's a number of factors behind it but i certainly think it's something that i would like us to work more on thanks mike and um, Vishal, we'll come around to you next um so this question i think is, is a bit difficult i suppose for me to answer and i think it, i think the answers are best probably coming from an, an, a, someone else with a disability or one of the other characteristics to, to see how they feel about it and if it has affected them negatively or positively in my mind i would like to think raising the awareness in one area has a positive impact in other areas but that could just be my kind of optimistic approach um but yeah i think it's a hard one to answer without speaking to the individuals that are likely to be impacted unfortunately can i just put in at that point sorry tom but i think you're i think you're right michelle i think people i think understanding experiences are clearly is important i think there has been a view that actually there would be a positive impact across all characteristics through the recognition of discrimination particularly around race and therefore there should be positive benefits across all all the different protected characteristics i think that i think that's true but i'm not sure it's as successful as it could be and i think that and i think that and i think particularly with disability it is partly because it's around as i said earlier it's, a, it's an individual issue for, for staff and for service users and therefore it not necessarily some of the initiatives that are being you know successful in other areas not necessarily being successful for people with specific disabilities but no i think you're right i think we do need to understand the lived experience in order to, to answer the question properly thanks mike and then tom will come around to you your thoughts on this i'd agree with Vishal. really it's just really difficult question yeah. to have an answer to in all honesty is that i think wherever there's a set of things so the nine protected characteristics people are always going to table them in terms of importance to them or how um one sort of protected characteristic has been in the press at the forefront of the press at the time so there's more attention on it so i think if my interest lies in x mike's lies in y is that there's always going to be sort of a, a skewed view of how things look i think what i do think is that i think whatever we do and whatever trusts do is and the nhs as a whole it's probably not enough and until we get some sort of national cross-government inequality strategy to sort of give us a steer on on sort of leveling the playing field that's not the right term to use is that we never i don't i don't see how we begin to even tackle sort of saying that i don't know disability is, is isn't having as much um sorry like mike was saying i'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it is that so there's more there's more sort of um work being done in the race area as opposed to disability one so I'm, again i wouldn't want to waffle because that's what i feel like i do so i'm not i'm not entirely sure i'd have an answer to the question it's fine yeah. no, don't worry <laughs> the other the other important point that michelle essentially and tom raising is that there's a lot of intersectionality around this as well but so actually it's it's a mistake to assume that somebody with one characteristic hasn't also got the other so there are there's a whole series of inter, you know there's a lot of crossover and intersectionality around a lot of these experiences and i think we the kind of way that we necessarily we sometimes deal with individual initiatives around a particular better characteristic potentially means that we're not looking at things in the round and making sure that we're we're treating we're being truly inclusive across the whole of the organization and across the whole of our society could i pose that back to you mike is that you know you were saying that you were you were seeing um, less progress in in the area of disability is that similar to your experience then through sort of the other 
genetic characteristics or is it mainly disability that's um i think yeah i think the from you know and, and this is these are personal views by the way and i'm a non-exec director rather than you know an operational director executive director of the trust and i've only been with the you know one trust for just under two years but you know i just it is in my view it is true that the the, the um what is now called reach racial equality and cultural heritage network is much more successful and vibrant than the disability network um and i think that you know I, i'm trying to find a way of, of helping get that net the, the disability network up to the same level of energy and, and therefore potential impact as the, as the reach network and i think that's that's what that's my observation it just make and i'm just as a result of that i'm speculating that that's been as a result of a, an increased focus around racial inequality that that hasn't necessarily then sorted the other areas but uh, you know it's difficult to say whether that's you know, whether there is a cause and effect of that nature okay thank you mike it's, it's been a really really interesting discussion i think it's a it's a difficult one with diversity there's no right or wrong answer so it's i think it's really interesting to hear kind of your guys perspectives on things um i'd just like to say again massive thank you for giving up your time this evening and i hope you've all enjoyed it um i just like to say thank you again